Now, remember, <laughs> when Mr. Nureyev arrives, mm -hmm. we must be dignified. We must be respectful. <laughs> I'm here. Not for long, you are not. Yeah. We are waiting for Mr. Nureyev. I'll handle this. Get out of here, you freak. You hit me. You weirdo. Get out. Move, move. Get a haircut. Who do these punk kids think they are? Uh, that, that one thinks he's Rudolf Nureyev. What? In fact, that was Rudolf Nureyev. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feed of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, I'm going to say it again. We're already halfway through season two. Yeah, this one's flying by. Like, I, I realize that a large chunk of season one was us looking at the, the pre-Muppet show stuff. So it's it's easy to sort of inflate it, but we are sort of flying through it. It's been fun, but I just I just looked at the show number tonight and I was like, episode 213. I'm like, crap, we're halfway through. And we got a couple of cool episodes tonight, I think. Yeah, these are these are great. Really good episodes. Very different guest stars. I, I would say that's a fair, a fair thing to say. They They both played to very different strengths. It's really tough to like sit down and try to write like a brief history of one of the biggest rock stars of all time <laughs> i that's understandable i feel like i've got to open my bio with a disclaimer because i know i'm going to mess multiple things up you got some names too you gotta worry about well there are names but there are also there's etiquette and there's there's an entire culture that i don't have any disrespect for but i'm i'm not indoctrinated into i don't know much about ballet or that. neither does sam it turns out Sam's got a lot of feelings, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to yeah. open with a, a disclaimer, though, that if there are any slip ups, that's entirely on me. There is going to be a moment where I just list a bunch of songs <laughs> because I'm not going to take you through his entire career. <laughs> but before we get all to all of that, uh, we would ask you to check out our social media at Lunatic Daring on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, lunaticdaring.com, where we have all of our episodes, our watch list and our bibliography. Like I said, we are halfway through the second season of The Muppet Show. Oh, and I got into a fender bender today, so that was fun. I'm glad you were able to make it safely. Nobody was hurt. Maybe the feelings of the old lady that I bumped into, but but besides that, everybody's good. Everything's fine. As usual, I watched these with my girls tonight, and the first episode features one of my girls' favorite things I think they've ever seen. So let's uh, let's get started. Let's get this started. So a couple episodes back, Nick, there was a joke. I'm trying to remember. It was about uh, a train seal act. Rudolf Nureyev has train seals? No, Adolf Nureyev does. Because the joke was, you would never get someone like Rudolf Nureyev on The Muppet Show, right? Tell us about this week's guest star. Well, this week's guest star is Rudolf Nureyev. Yeah, it is. A very, very interesting man. There, there has been a movie, at least one movie made about his life. It's very easy to understand why, just given what a... I guess a controversial character he was, and a massively influential one. So at the at the top of the episode, I did mention I don't know a lot about ballet. I'm an expert. I've seen the Nutcracker. I, I haven't. I saw the Nutcracker at the San Francisco um, Symphony Hall. 
Yeah, I've never been to see the symphony or to see an opera, except for rock operas, but that's different. We saw La Boheme at the opera. That's a nice opera house. I'm not sure what that is. You would hate it because it's the basis for Rent. I Yeah, I, I don't like Rent. Rent is a modern kind of hip-hoppy adaptation of La Boheme. Are the characters so. insufferable? Not as much, but they're also speaking another language, so I don't know. <laughs> You know, I was just reading the subtitles. I enjoy opera, but I will not pretend to know anything about it. But uh, tell us about this uh, dancer that hosted the show tonight. He looks very young in the episode, but Rudolf Nureyev was actually born in 1938. He was born on March 17th on a trans-Siberian train near Irkutsk. We're already off and running. He was born on a train? He was born on a train. His father was a Red Army political commissar. Mm -hmm. He was the only son born to his family. He had three older sisters and just fell in love with dancing from an early age. He danced in Bashkir uh, folk dances. And while doing that, he got noticed and he was encouraged to dance in Leningrad. He auditioned for the Bolshoi Ballet and was accepted. He would later leave that company for the Marinsky Ballet. He wouldn't be able to enroll in any major ballet schools until 1955 because World War II had broken out. He was 17 uh, at the time that he was able to actually get in. From there, he's accepted into the Vaganova Academy of Russian Ballet. He moves in with Alexander Ivanovich Pushkin, the director of that school. And he would actually graduate in 1958 and join the Kirov Ballet. And he's given, like out of the gate, he's given solo roles as a principal dancer, which I imagine is a very significant thing. He was regularly partnered with a ballerina named Natalia Dudinskaya, uh, the company's senior ballerina and the wife of the director. From 1958 to 1961, he would dance 15 roles, usually with Nanel Kurgapkina. He would dance a large number of, of performances with her. There was an incident in which he interrupted a performance of Don Quixote for 40 minutes because he really wanted to be dancing in tights and not the customary trousers. And he didn't get his way that performance, but it would change the way that they would handle the performance thereafter. Even at this early age, he's already sort of rocking the boat, which isn't going to be the easiest thing, or I shouldn't say it's not the easiest thing. It's not the most advised thing to do in Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia in a very kind of traditional regimented art form. It probably doesn't respond well to change. No. What ends up happening is they stop the, uh, the Department of Culture stops wanting to send him abroad because they're worried that he'll be a liability, right? They want to assert that I guess that uh, Russia has like the the in-demand and dominant culture, but he messed up at a, or I, I shouldn't say he messed up. I'm sure the dancing's fine. But the incident with the Don Quixote thing in 1959, he was dancing in Vienna at an international youth festival, and he was told by the Ministry of Culture that he would not be able to leave Russia again. Of course, this wouldn't stick. French tour organizers saw him dance in Leningrad in 1960 and asked for the Soviet authorities to let him come dance in Paris, which he was allowed to go. The performances in Paris, of course, went very well. However, Nureyev broke some of the rules about commingling with foreigners, which I have to imagine were very strict. He was also seen in gay bars in Paris, which, if you're being tailed by the KGB, was generally not something you wanted to have happen. The KGB wanted to send him back, and they tried three different times to get people or to get him to go back, saying that his mom was ill or something else was going on. Everything about even down to them sending him to Paris, all of that's about optics. All of that's about them saying we've got the best dancers, we got to space first, 
what are you guys going to do, right? We've got the best boxer to fight Rocky. Whatever he hits, he destroys. He broke the rules. They wanted to send him back, but he anticipated prison. And the thing is, the rest of the troop was supposed to continue from Paris to London. They initially tried to get Nureyev to go back for a special KGB performance. And he was like, that's kind of sus. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and they tried two more times with a different bait. And what ended up happening was, like seeing the writing on the wall, he got some help from his friends in Paris and he defected, uh, which is how we got him to be our guest. Well, not directly how we got him to be our guest, but it would right. lead to him being available to be our guest. Wait, did Henson sneak him out of Russia? No, but I would oh, love okay. to see that movie. So the Soviet government got his parents and his dance teachers and some of his other colleagues to send him letters asking him to come back, but he wouldn't actually make it back to see anyone until 1987 because his mother was ill at that point. Dame Nanette de Volor, if I got that right, offered him a contract to join the Royal Ballet as the principal dancer immediate, basically immediately after he defected. He would stay with them from that time until like 1970, uh, when he would be promoted to the principal guest artist, uh, which enabled him to make a lot more international appearances as he liked. But he, he would still perform with them regularly until committing to the Paris Opera Ballet, I believe in 1980. I'll, I'll list off some of the ballerinas that he's worked with because... I assume that it's got significance for people that are more apprised of, I guess, the history of ballet. Or He worked with prima ballerina Dame Margot Fontaine in Giselle on the 21st of February, 1962. He also danced Poem Tragique, uh, a solo choreographed by Frederick Ashton, and the Black Swan Pas de Deux from Swan Lake. Don't you mean Swine Lake? We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But yeah, he made a number of appearances in... North America. He had a long-lasting connection with the National Ballet of Canada. In 1982, um, he was granted Austrian citizenship. The thing is, after he defected, he didn't belong to any state. Not until the 80s was he actually given any sort of home base. In 1983, he was appointed the director of the Paris Opera Ballet, where he would continue to dance as well, and he would be their dancer and chief choreographer until 1989. Uh, he mentored dancers such as Sylvie Guillem, Isabel Guerin, um, Manuel Legree, Elizabeth Marin, Elizabeth Platel, Charles Jude, and Monique Laurier. Unfortunately, toward the end of his tenure there, illness was becoming a problem. He, he still worked very hard. His final production would be called La Bayade, which follows a version of that that he, he danced as a young man. Rudolph would test positive for HIV in 1984. Yeah. But he, I, it was, for lack of a better term, a novel virus at that point in time. He didn't really think of it being that big of a deal. But by the late 80s, his, his capability started to suffer a little bit. He entered the final phase of the disease in spring of 1992. It's hard to remember how many people we lost. We don't think about it as much because we've kind of not cured it, but we've kind of gotten it under control. Yeah. Man, we lost so many talented people. Obviously, people all over but we lost so many talented people and the way that it was handled initially and yeah. sort of trivialized or for lack of i'll bleep this but fuck ronald reagan <laughs> yeah ronald reagan's favorite thing was to like tell jokes about aids killing gay people reagan killed people by just not acknowledging that it was a thing i mean he also defunded a lot of mental health work in california before he was even president he's kind of a piece of shit and a rapist oh was he Yes, literally a rapist. Listen to Killer Mike's song, Reagan. <laughs> okay. Think it's on his last album? Ronald Reagan was an actor, not at all a factor. 
Mazda, just an employee of the country's real masters. Just like the Bushes, Clinton and Obama, just another talking head telling lies on teleprompters. Killer Mike for president. In 1992, he visited Kazan and he appeared as a conductor in front of a live audience at the Musical Tatar Academic Opera and Ballet Theater, which now presents a festival named after him. But he would return to Paris with a high fever and he was admitted to the hospital Notre Dame to perpetual secure. Anyone who speaks French and is cringing right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> They're okay. They're because I know. I'm just bad. And the vowels... You're not doing any worse than I would. Uh, but it was a suburb northwest of Paris, and he was operated on for pericarditis. It was an inflammation of a sac around the heart. At the time that he was fighting that, he still planned to perform. He, he planned to come to the States and perform and to conduct in New York. He was able to successfully do that, and the reception went well. July of 1992, he showed renewed signs of pericarditis, um, but didn't want further treatment. His last public appearance would be in October of that year, the premiere of Palai Garnier, a new production of La Bayadea. Nureyev would re-enter the hospital on November 20th, 1992, and remain there until he died at age 54 on the 6th of January, 1993. Yeah, I didn't know that till today. Something that is really interesting about him, though, is he wasn't someone that liked to be contained. He was someone who was constantly pushing the envelope and didn't like being told that he couldn't do that. Despite that, he was a real stickler for classical technique, and he was kind of a perfectionist in that regard. Those aren't necessarily contradictory things. Did he defect because he was gay? I is, think that the, he is, is that really the reason why he defects? I think he defected because he didn't want to go to jail. I think he defected because he saw warning signs that the KGB had been following him and they didn't approve of his behavior. Right. And he was already kind of on thin ice at that point. It wasn't necessarily ideological, ideological. I can't say that it wasn't, but I, from what I've read, it seemed more like he was under the gun and he had to make a choice. And so... Right. It was that or the gulag. Right. But by then he was probably already famous. Oh yeah, he was absolutely famous at that point. He was a big name by the time he defected a number of ways, especially within Russia, but even outside of that, especially after that performance in Paris. I very much enjoy him in this episode. He was great. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Rudolph Nureyev. Muppet Show, episode 213, with our guest, Rudolph Nureyev, produced between October 18th and October 21st, 1977. It would see its UK premiere on January 22nd, 1978, and then we'd see it in the States on January 23rd, same year. Directed by Philip Casson, written by our favorite quartet. Rudolf Nureyev? Uh, Rudolf Nureyev? 15 seconds, Mr. Nureyev. Uh-huh. I knew he was too smart to show up. This episode, out of the gate, has every indication that it'll be... Every once in a while, we'll see a guest host that is very reliant on their fame outside of being on The Muppet Show or working with it. Rudolph doesn't do that, and we'll get to that in a moment, but everything about the way that it's set up expects that the audience knows what a big deal this guy is, which I don't think I'd ever really heard his name before a few weeks ago. I'd say both of these episodes are completely revolve around their guests in a, like in a way that we haven't seen, I think, this year yet. The selection of pieces in this, the selection of music, I mean, in the next one, these guest stars are, they're the star of the show for these two episodes. Sam's going to try, try to steal the thunder a little bit, but... Yes, no, Sam, Sam, Sam has a good 
slash bad week this week. You also have to mention that Scooter's wearing a tux, and that's important because basically what the backstage story of this episode is, is the Muppet Show is trying to be classy. And we know if the Muppet Show is one thing, it's it, well, it's not classy. <laughs> that's not that's definitely not the one thing it is. No. But uh, yeah, so and, and we're starting with that, right? We're starting with that joke of like Scooter coming in to tell him it's time. He's like, yeah, I knew he wouldn't show up. Like he's too, way too classy for this joint. This episode was a big deal, by the way. This made news. I believe it. It was kind of a big deal when it happened. I, I feel like the, the Muppet Show is probably legitimized by this point, but getting someone with this degree of star power who's... Who is probably at that time the most famous ballet dancer in the world is just very different from what you would normally see on a on a family variety show on at 7.30 at night. They know that. That's why they're all in tuxes, <laughs> right? Because we don't get guests like this. Everybody in this is wearing a tux. We, we get to our Muppet Show theme, and Gonzo, I feel like we've seen the balloon before. I think so, or a variation of it, at least. Yeah. Uh, a green balloon comes out of Gonzo's trumpet, which Gonzo then bats with his nose, and I was wondering if they were trying to sneak something past the radar, because, I, I mean, the the balloon might be ribbed for her pleasure, but... Listen, Freud, sometimes a balloon's just a balloon. Okay, but he, he poked it with his nose. Sometimes a nose is just a nose. We go from there to the backstage, where Kermit's noticing how nice everything looks. Scooter, sort of... I think this might be the most I've ever identified with Scooter. He's complaining about having to wear ties. <laughs> yeah. Sam really has this place looking good for Rudolph Nureyev. Yeah, well, I don't mind that so much, but me and Robin are mad we have to wear these formal clothes. Kermit asks where Robin is, and we just see, what was uh, Fozzie's agent season one? Irving Bazaar. That was just the top hat. For a second, yeah. I thought he was back. It's the same look. I didn't make that connection, but you're right, yeah. But we, we find out that the top hat is actually just covering Robin because they didn't have any in his size. Then Sam, the... Secondary star of the show, I, I guess I'll say, yeah. uh, arrives for an inspection because he wants to make sure that everything is well arranged for the arrival. He's acting like a drill sergeant. Attention! Hut! Uh, uh, beg pardon? Line up for inspection. Inspection? Yes, we must look proper for Mr. Nureyev. At last, to have a man of dignity, a man of culture on this weird, sick program. <laughs> Did you wash your flippers? Uh, uh, yes, sir. Oh, yeah. And he, he yanks up one of Kermit's feet at one point. He's just like, you don't need to stand. Did you clip your toenails? He's checking He's checking to see if he washed his flippers. <laughs> and Kermit's like, yeah, I washed my flippers. And Sam grabs his foot anyway to look at to see if his flippers clean. He falls and then he yells at Kermit for being on the ground. Will you please get off the floor? This is the episode now. You know how I feel about Sam. I think this episode, there's a slight... I think they're all scared. I think there's something really weird going on this week or they're just placating him. I don't know what it is, but like they're letting Sam run wild. Like Sam's acting like he's the boss or that he has power over people. To be fair, I think Sam generally thinks that he's the boss and he has power over people. Sam is a severe looking puppet. <laughs> it's a very distinctive look he's got from, of all the Muppets, I think. He's got a very prominent brow. He just doesn't look like a nice person, you know, or he doesn't look like a happy person. I don't think Sam would know what to do with happy. Well, that he wouldn't have anything to complain about. They're all excited that Rudolph is coming because this course. is a big deal. He's uh, Sam's favorite opera singer. <laughs> yeah, it's even my kids were like, he's not an opera singer. <laughs> Of course, being that Sam is so self-aware, he uh, also respects boundaries, which is why he follows Kermit on stage. To make sure he gets a good intro. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed an honor uh, to welcome you to the Muppet Show. 
Uh, tonight's guest star is one of the world's great masters of ballet, Mr. Rudolf Nureyev. What, what, what? Are you sure it's ballet, not opera? Positive. Six of one, half dozen the other. Culture is culture. And you see Kermit sitting there like, I don't pay you, but if I did, I would fire you. It's almost like Kermit gave everybody a pep talk. He's like, listen, let's just give Sam this one night. <laughs> let's... He gets this week. Next week, we can do whatever we want. Maybe he'll leave if he feels like he's done his job. But uh, yeah, he comes out with Kermit to introduce the first act. Uh, but here to get things started is Dr. Teeth and the Electric... What, Dr. Teeth? <laughs> Sam, I know I promised you a very cultural show, but don't worry. You see, they're, they're playing a minuet, and they have promised to be very classy. And we, we get to see the Mayhem. Of course, the Mayhem is not happy to be there playing what they're playing. Yep. In particular, Animal has a really hard time with it, because I don't think... They're playing minuet in a major, which I don't think has any percussion. I don't believe so, no. At first, hey, hey, what's this bum recall again? I love how this goes because, yeah, they're playing Minuet and Animal. Like you said, Animal doesn't really have anything to do. I mean, he's tapping the drum, but it's a, it's a string quartet, so you don't need a drummer. For the first half of it, they're all just looking at Animal, and Floyd's like, he's gonna blow. They know. Animal's not going to make it through this. And I think there's even a point that where, Flo where Floyd says, Animal's not going to make it, man. Well, I think he's going to freak. Ah. If ah. he goes, I go with him. This is the second or third time we've seen the mayhem kind of rock and roll up a, uh, a classical piece. Listen, we know from Wayne and Wanda, whenever the Muppets attempt classy, it's never going to work. The only moments they get that are truly classy are like being green or something. From the scene, we, we finally get to come face to face with our guest star for... I'm here. Not for long, you are yeah. not. We are waiting for Mr. Nureyev. About as long as it takes for Sam to throw him out. <laughs> Calls him a hippie. <laughs> well, I don't tell you, freak, you hippie. He loves so much. He calls him a hippie. He turns around. And, well, does he expect him to walk in in his leotard? I think he was just upset that he was smiling. Man, the man did have a nice smile. This person looks way too happy to be here. He also, to me, looks super Russian. That's fair, actually. Yeah. Like I see a guy like, like that. I see a guy dressed, the... dressed. Yeah, he looks Russian to me. Like you know. But then again, I don't really. The show doesn't actually give us any evidence that Sam knows he's from the Soviet Union. Sam didn't really know what he did. He just knew that he was famous and he was probably mentioned in highbrow things. Although he's got, yeah, I was about to say that that's a very Russian name. Who do these punk kids think they are? Uh, that, that one thinks he's Rudolf Nureyev. <laughs> what? In, in fact, I was Rudolf Nureyev. What have I done? <gasps> uh, I think I'll go out and introduce something cultural. When we get to this next bit, this is what I'm talking about, right? Is this the first time? This isn't the first time we've seen Link outside of Pigs in Space, right? No, but I think it's his first musical number. Hmm. Uh, now, in keeping with our tone of uh, culture and classicism, 
And to uh, kill time while we see if we still have a guest star, we proudly present the love duet from the third act of the Barber of Der Fledermus uh, by Giuseppe Wagner, or, or Giuseppe Wagner, uh, whatever. La sedaren la mano, la mediridis. But you'll notice all except for one song in this episode are classical pieces. Mm-hmm. Or they're they're classy pieces. They're opera or they're classical or they're ballet. Oh, how they try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing that struck me about this is it almost seems like this is what happens if a Wayne and Wanda sketch actually works. So Piggy and Link are dressed up like Vikings, I'd say, right? Yeah. Kermit introduces this as a piece of Wagner, and it's not. It's not Wagner. It's it's Mozart. <laughs> It's from Don Giovanni. So it was just interesting to me that like, I'm just guessing that's on purpose. But this is kind of a typical Muppet performance. I think what we're seeing here really for the first time, yeah, is this dynamic between these two pigs, them trying to hog each other's spotlight. is gonna continue and that's kind of their relationship their relationship is very contentious but they because they're both pigs they get paired together a lot Mm. despite the fact that she can't stand him and he probably wouldn't like her if he had enough brain cells to you know i think he's moving from a place of not having to like her if link's in the room everyone gets to deal with link he's i love him he's one of my favorite jim henson characters but yeah him and piggy are singing a piece from uh Don Giovanni, and they're just trying to upstage each other. It's also, seeing these two in Pigs in Space every week gives it extra weight. Like, I wonder if Wayne and Wanda would have stuck around longer if they had something else to do outside of just being the Wayne and Wanda sketch. This is it's funny. It, it, again, it's just, it's, uh, the Muppets trying to be classy. They do about as well as San Diego. They tried. Then they get the hook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's Sam. Okay, when did Sam install the giant magnet? Probably as soon as he heard Nereev was going to be on the show. He seems very controlling like that. He just goes and pulls a lever and a giant magnet comes and because because Piggy and Link are wearing armor, he's able to grab them by the by a magnet and drag them off stage when he's upset with their performance. Yeah, bitch! Magnets! It's a very uh, elaborate way to just give someone the hook. You see Sam again backstage and he's relieved to know that Rudolph is agreed to come back after he made such a great first impression. Rudolph, of course, hasn't had time to come in and say hi to Sam again. Uh, he forgives you, Sam. <laughs> what? I just talked to him. He isn't angry. He's putting on his costume for his big ballet number. Oh, bless you, Frog. Oh, thank you for these glad tidings. And what ballet, may I ask, is the incomparable Mr. Nureyev going to perform? Uh, Swine Lake. <laughs> okay. Yes, culture, dignity at last. Cl- Swine Lake? Based on the famous ballet by Peter Tchaikovsky in 1977. Now, before we go into this next section, mm-hmm. I guess I've got to get up, in, up close and personal because this is something that I thought I was over. Okay. But as a small child, I had recurring nightmares about Miss Piggy. Ooh. And... This ain't gonna help. 
No, God, no. The recurring formula was I would get kidnapped. I would end up in a castle. She would be getting ready to eat me. And then Kermit would try to help me escape. And she would eat Kermit as I escaped. And I would work at, wake up feeling super guilty. Wow. And at some point, it just some part of my mind was like, oh, I can move on. There are other things to be afraid of. And then Swine Lake happens. Swine Lake happens. And let's talk about Swine Lake for a little bit, while simultaneously yep. also talking about other traumatic films from my childhood. There was another one called Magic in the Mirror, which is okay. a, a movie for kids, which features anthropomorphic ducks that were modeled after Howard the Duck, but somehow more terrifying. And the premise is a Alice in Wonderland knockoff, with the exception that these ducks really like when human children go to their, their side of the mirror because they make the best tea. Wow. I see. It's only fair play, because I really like Duck. Swine Lake's a parody of Swan Lake, but he yes. uses the music from Swan Lake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Swine so Lake. how would you describe this? <laughs> Uh, nightmare fuel. I would describe it as nightmare fuel. Yeah. So Kermit explains that in Swine Lake, a beautiful princess has been turned into a pig by the wick wicked, wicked magician, magician Trichinosis. <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, the handsome prince, there's a handsome prince in this too, the handsome prince hasn't heard about the change. So this is our first exposure to of playing with the Muppets and, and the team. His sense of humor and his charisma is immediately present in how he interacts with for a second, I thought that it was Piggy, but it's or like some sort of weird hide to Piggy's Jekyll, which is a weird thing to say out loud as it is. Uh, but <laughs> this this character is just known as the ballerina pig. And maybe this is the only time we see her. Is this the only yeah, time it, we see it her? Is. Oh, yeah, it God. is. Don't worry. You're, you're, you're OK. You're safe, Nick. When David Laser would book a guest for the show, he would ask them, are there any particular Muppets you would like to work with? Is there a skill or a talent that you have it shown on television that you'd like to. They would try to cater the episode a little bit. Nureyev said he wanted to work with Piggy. But the problem is they wanted to do this full ballet sequence. But you can't actually do that with Miss Piggy because you're not taking advantage of having this guy there if you're not showing him head to toe. And they had no way to show Miss Piggy head to toe in a way that wouldn't have been horrifying. And it actually doesn't work, right? It would completely change her scales. She's not that size, all these things, right? But but at the same time, you can't shoot a ballet sequence from the waist up. Right. It doesn't make any sense. So their compromise was he later gets a scene with Piggy that we're really going to get into. She's going to try. Trigger warning for cons some consent issues later on. Did this episode come with a trigger warning? It did not. No warning on this one either. I think we're just too sensitive. I don't know if we're too sensitive or Disney's not sensitive enough, but no, no warning. So the compromise they made was they made this ballerina pig, this full size costume of a female pig ballerina. Now, inside that pig is a man named Graham Fletcher. He's not an important name to remember, but Graham is going to do a few more episodes, like I think another like five episodes of The Muppet Show as a dancer for them inside these costumes. Because if you notice, we were watching it tonight and my wife was like, who is in that costume? Because it's not one of the Muppeteers, because look at his points. Mm. The person doing it was obviously a ballet dancer. 
He was a member of the Royal Ballet Company in London and was one of their principals for a long time. And yeah, he ended up doing several things uh, for the Muppet Show specifically over the next couple of years. So it's a guy named Graham Fletcher in there. Well, Graham Fletcher's in there most of the time. The rest of the time, it's an empty sack. <laughs> yeah. Graham's um, <laughs> very strong. I mean, he's very fit, as we'll find out later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he dances this ballet with this giant pig. It's not that far off from the Apache dance from Rita Moreno. You're right. I hadn't drawn that comparison, but you're you're right. Although the abuse is kind of one-sided. You know, he doesn't take a whole lot of hits, but the pig does. But yeah, he dances with a thing, and there's a lot of comedic stuff that happens. I, you know, and then, yeah, and then there's those shots where he, like, throws her up in the air. It's obviously an empty puppet or an empty suit. I do really like, though, when he does the thing where he's like, he 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 does that thing with, like, the guys do with the signs on street corners. Mm-hmm. He kind of does a little bit of that, but with this giant pig, which I thought was quite deft. We joke because, obviously, the, the pig suit was empty when he's flinging it around, but he still seems to be you know, still very physically impressive mm-hmm. with the things he can do and kind of incorporate because he's still dancing at the same time. Yeah, there isn't a wasted movement. So this is my at least my seven year old. This is her favorite, favorite, favorite thing. I don't know why, but she just loves the image of this man dancing with this gigantic pig and flipping her around and, and everything. And I, I mean, again, she likes Miss Piggy, so that's probably part of it. But this is one of her favorite things. We've watched it out of context many, many times. From there, we we move to our UK spot, which this is kind of sweet. It's very sweet. We've got a whatnot who he's... Anything he's got on one side of his face or one side of his body is probably not on the other side. So he's got a goatee on one side, a mustache on the other, an eye on one side. The entire point, he's singing a song called Something's Missing by Paul Tracy. I've got two wheels on my tricycle and four toes on each foot. I've got six days in my weekend up with this I will not put. Basically, the whole thing is just about how he's half of a person without his better half. And then she shows up at the end and he's a whole whatnot. I thought it was a really sweet piece. There's also some very clever editing in it. Mm-hmm. Something's missing, something's... <laughs> right, and he literally blinks out of existence for a second in the middle of the chorus um, and, and pops back in. And, and so there's just, there's some camera tricks in it that are fun. And yeah, it's it's a really, it's a sweet song. It's also a funny song though. He's talking about all the things that he only has half of or all the things that are missing. I'm a plant that has no soil. I'm a kettle that won't boil unless you're near me. And uh, and what he, and we find out what he needs to complete him is his, his better half, his love. And it ends very sweetly. Shot a little bit, though, like the time in the bottle sequence. The, the movement around the stage made me think of that, although this is not anywhere near as depressing. It is a it is a weird look on the character, <laughs> you know, like this. He looks. What was the name? Of, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of the character. Jim Carrey's fireman character from In Living Color. Oh, Fire Marshal Bill. Yeah. Yeah, he's not that far. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I'm a nightingale that sings because you're near me. Now, my love, I beg you stay. Cause when you stay, then I can say nothing's missing. Nothing's missing. Nothing's missing. 
now in an attempt to keep things classy, we go to Veterinarian's Hospital. <laughs> and now, Veterinarian's Hospital. On this special episode, our quack who has gone to the dogs will pay tribute to William Shakespeare. So Veterinarian's Hospital, they're making Shakespeare <laughs> jokes. Yeah, just to keep up with uh, the class quotient. I'm not going to keep repeating this criticism because I thought this was funny, but man, this does not work for kids at all. <laughs> no. This is not the first. This is what, like the third time they've gone to the whole Hamlet bacon joke or Shakespeare bacon joke. I don't think I recognize this pig. No, no. I feel like they got it at like Build-A-Bear. It seems pretty generic. <laughs> it's a pretty generic pig. It, it doesn't look like one of their normal pigs. You're right. It's kind of a cuter looking pig. Well, it's like maybe it's supposed to be a small one or something because the eyes themselves. Well, he has a little Hamlet. So, yeah, they just tell a bunch of Shakespeare jokes. Say, this patient needs a transfusion. What's his blood type? Well, I think it's 2B, but I'm not sure. Well, make up your mind. 2B or not 2B. <laughs> That's how Vets Hospital cleans it up. Now, that really offended me. I'm a student of Shakespeare. Huh? You were a student with Shakespeare. The next backstage bit feels important because of what happens after. Miss Piggy is very, very excited for her upcoming duet with Kermit, which is a surprise to Kermit because Kermit's not planning to have a duet with Miss Piggy. Nope. Well, you're, you're not doing it with me. What? No, you're gonna do it with Rudolph Nureyev. She is A-okay with it. Yeah. She drops Kermit. Like, for all of her criticism of whenever a, a cute female guest star comes on and Kermit ignores her, exhibit A. She's a slave to the truth of the moment. The hog wants what the hog wants. <laughs> but we, we get to see Robin again um, making the introduction. <laughs> well, kind of. Because... We get to see a top hat with legs, but yeah. Well, that's better than what Kermit's seeing. Why uh, Uncle Kermit can't make the next introduction? He's trying to get the spiked heel marks off his throat. So I guess I'll fill in. Here once again, the multi-talented Rudolph Nureyev. Let's sew this next number. Let's let's just dive in. Yeah, uh, Miss Piggy is taking it upon herself to seduce a noticeably reluctant Rudolph Nureyev. And of course he walks in and he doesn't realize that it's a co-ed sauna. Notices that he's playing coy, and I guess she's addicted to the chase. But they, they sing a duet of Baby It's Cold Outside, which was originally written by Frank Loser uh, in 1945. Or not, excuse me, 1949. Yeah, let's, I was going to say, I don't think we should spend time litigating Baby It's Cold Outside. That's a much bigger discussion. There has been controversy about that song that I think is hyperbole, but I also think some of it's warranted. If you want to know about the song and its history and why people feel that it's promoting rape culture, check out. There's tons of think pieces about it that you can check out. It is in 2021. It is a controversial song. Up until a few years ago, it was a standard <laughs> that everybody sang. You know, that every major, I think it's most famous for what, um, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. That would make sense. I've heard so many versions of this song in particular that I, I don't know what would be the most famous one. But we can talk about how aggressive she is in this. <laughs> the problem is, because of the song and the modern kind of association with the song, this actually makes the point. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, even without the modern context for it, Boundaries are for other people. They're not for Piggy. This is a crazy one. First of all, like they're both just in towels and Piggy is trying to get him out of that towel. 
She wants him to relax. <laughs> Which isn't going to happen if she keeps clawing at him, but... There's that great moment where she's like, Maybe you're overdressed. No, I'm fine. Maybe I'm overdressed. <laughs> oh my God. Frank does such an amazing job yeah. in this sketch. Yeah. There's there is a point at which she actually does get the towel and he has to like grab another emergency towel. It does. I know she almost gets it. She's not. Listen, I mean, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's in incredible shape. I see the appeal, but I don't know. There's a little no means no problem going on here, you know, but uh, yeah, she's very aggressively pursuing him. And, you know, usually in baby, it's cold outside. They've re- they've kind of flipped the gender roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very funny. Oh, yeah, it's it's entirely played up for laughs and... Yeah. And this is a scene he got, right? Remember, I said he wanted to do a scene with Miss Piggy, and while they had to kind of do something different for the ballet number, they did give him his scene with Miss Piggy. Mm-hmm. I'll say this, he's not really a singer. He's totally game, but he's not a singer. He's got the charisma, but yeah, like there's... There was an aspect of it that reminded me of, like, some of Arnold Schwarzenegger's earlier movies. Yes. This is the sketch where he's most vocal. Yes. To be fair, his English is way better than my Russian. You heard my terrible attempt at Russian and French. I like that he's not a great singer. Mm-hmm. More than anything, it just feels like he's having fun. Especially, like, knowing that he, he defected and he's living a freer life. I, I don't think he did this with any sort of strong ego. I think this is something that he just wanted to have fun doing. It's interesting that his first number is the ballet number, but then the other stuff isn't. It's like, they okay, you got to get the ballet number out, but now he gets to do other stuff and goof around. I guarantee you there's never another time he's done anything like this. Fun number, I would say probably in modern context, somewhat controversial and problematic. That criticism of the song is then proven, at least in this context, correct because of the action of the character singing it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a staging thing. You can you can take any song and put it in a new context and have it become something else entirely. How'd you do in this next one with the fire? So I was a little nervous. Yeah, okay. I, I thought you might be. Rolf plays Claire de Lune. Which is another song that I actually recognized, which is kind of nice. Fozzie comes out and he's trying to be helpful because he's noticed that the candelabra is not there and also not lit. Got your candelabra. Sounds terrific. This is kind of one of Fozzie's specialties, which is his unhelpful helping. He's a big-hearted, well-meaning person who wants to help, but his help is always a hindrance. Of course, it's funny <laughs> as a result. Got a match, match, match for the Okay. <laughs> 
ends up melting the candle. I, and the thing is, Rolf is a... <laughs> he a no, he brings out a blowtorch. <laughs> he brings out yeah. a blowtorch. <laughs> he tries lighting it with matches, can't get it to work. All Rolf wants to do is get through the damn song, and the bear keeps coming out. <laughs> Rolf is a very fuzzy Muppet. So if you <laughs> yes. see those ha- hairs get singed... And he keeps trying to light it, he keeps doing it, Rolf does it. Rolf's just trying to play, and then Fozzie comes out with a blowtorch. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> so good. Uh, Ralph, I think it's all taken care of. You're going to have a beautiful candle to play with. (laughs) Give it time. (laughs) To Sam's credit, half credit. Partial credit. Yeah, partial credit. He's willing to apologize to Rudolph for... Well, not for what he did earlier, but for all the stuff that Kermit has forced Rudolph to do on the show. I just want to apologize for the disgusting things the frog has forced you to do on this show. The, the frog did not force him. <laughs> the frog didn't force me. What? No, I wanted to do them. And it was fun. He's shocked to see Rudolph in a tux and ready for his final number, which is a song called Top Hat white tie and tails i am putting on my top hat tying up my white tie brushing off my tail written by irving berlin from the 1935 fred astaire ginger rogers movie musical top hat very famous musical i've heard fred astaire's name i don't think i've seen anything with him in it i like this again because he can't sing (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'll be there Putting on my top hat Tying up my white tie Dancing in my tail But he could tap He's joined by a bunch of Muppets And they're all wearing their tuxes They're all fancy And they do this number Top hat, white tie, and tails I would say it's a pretty classy number. It is funny, though, because it is the joke is kind of like Sam wants him to be classy. and He's not classy, but then he's out here in a tuxedo singing about being classy. I don't think Sam's comfortable with being happy with something. Yeah, as, as we learn uh, during the final moments. Tying up my wife, tying, dancing in my again we've come down to the end of another show so let us have a warm thank you for our very special guest star the incomparable rudolph nureyev mr nureyev i just want you to know that i am sorry you are sorry you threw me out no i'm sorry i ever let you back in turns out you really were that dirty hippie i thought you were what are you doing coming in here having fun He wanted something culture, not counterculture. I just think Sam is anti-fun. Oh, absolutely. It's not like he's running around like Steve Martin with an arrow through his head or something. He's not not in a clown outfit like Milton Berle. He's just having fun in that offense, Sam. Because to Sam, fun is not cultured. (laughs) And then we find out that Waldorf's been sleeping through the whole thing. Ben Statler's like, eh, (laughs) and goes to sleep with him. (laughs) I, I think it's a very strong episode. And I say that even with the understanding of the nightmare fuel that I don't know when the next time I'll I'll watch Swine Lake, but that's fair. It is a very strong episode.
So next up is Muppet Show episode number 214 with special guest star Elton John. Produced in October 1977, came out in the uh, January, February, somewhere around there. This one's directed by Peter Harris. This is a tough bio to do. This is a tough rundown. It's one of the biggest rock stars of all time. You should know who he is, but that's not fair. Not everyone's going to know who he is. Not everyone's going to know, especially know his history. I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening to this at least know who Elton John is. Sir Elton Hercules John was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight on March 25th, 1947 in Middlesex, England. Uh, Reginald started playing his, uh, or Reggie, as he went by, started playing his grandmother's piano when he was a young boy, uh, tapping out songs by ear. At seven, he started formal lessons. At 11, he won a junior scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music, where he impressed his teachers by being able to play back a piece of music after only hearing it once. He didn't love it at the Academy. Uh, he liked playing. He really enjoyed Chopin and Bach and being in the choir, uh, but uh, the formality of the whole thing bugged him. And he said, quote, I was one of those children who could just get away without practicing and still pass. Uh, so he would skip class, just scrape by on his grades. And he ended up leaving before taking his final exams. But I definitely know that feeling as being that like I was that kid who like I was good enough to pass. So I never did bother to like excel. I spent most of my childhood grounded because I had high test scores and low grades. Yeah, that was that was me, too. Now, it seems like Reggie's father was a real prick. He didn't approve of his son's music. He wanted him to be like a banker or something, and he was largely absent in his life. And when he was around, all, all that happened is that he and his wife fought a bunch, and they ended up divorcing when Reginald was 14. His mother remarried to a man who was much more supportive and loving and caring, it seemed, and Reggie really seemed to like his stepfather, so that's nice. But his biological father's strictness and disapproval is one of the reasons that when he finally became a star as Elton John, he would wear the, the outrageous outfits and the, uh, just be so loud and bold and everything. It's, it's almost like a giant middle finger to his disapproving conservative father. When he was 15, he got a job playing piano at a pub. Uh, he had a rock group for a minute called the Corvettes. Despite having good vision, he started wearing horn-rimmed glasses to imitate Buddy Holly. In 1962, he and some friends formed a band called Bluesology. By the mid-60s, Bluesology, which actually sounds like a made-up band name from like The Office or something, Bluesology uh, was supporting bands like the Isley Brothers and Patti LaBelle on tour. Five years later, Reggie answered an ad in a British magazine called New Musical Express, which had a connection to a, a record label called Liberty Records. At that meeting, he was given an unopened envelope of lyrics written by a man named Bernie Toppin, who had answered the same ad. Elton took it home, took the lyrics home, and wrote music to go with them, and then sent that to Toppin. They became fast friends and songwriting partners, and still work together today, over 50 years later. Their collaboration is one of the most famous, legendary, productive songwriting collaborations in pop music history. One can argue, and in fact, many have, that while Reggie and Bernie are different people, Elton John is both of them. They continued working that way, by the way. Bernie would write some lyrics, and then Elton would write the music, and then he would rearrange the words if necessary, you know, to fit the tunes he had written. After meeting Toppin, uh, Reggie changed his name to Elton John, an homage to two members of actually his band, Bluesology, sax player Elton Dean and vocalist Long John Baldry. He legally changed it in 1972, taking the middle name Hercules, which is badass, and cue the Nutty Professor. Oh, Hercules, Hercules! 
Elton and Bernie were staff songwriters at DJM Records, pumping out easy listening tunes for musicians I've never heard of and were definitely not as famous as Elton John. The first single Elton released on his own is in 1968. It's a song called I've Been Loving You. Their first album, and I'm going to say there a lot. When I, and when I say there, I mean Bernie and Elton. Uh, their first album, Empty Sky, came out the next year. And uh, they followed that up with a self-titled record the, the next year. And that produced Elton's first hit song. Still one of his most beloved songs. And you can tell everybody this is your song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done. which reached number seven in the UK, number eight in the US, and the album would eventually go gold. Around this time, Elton broke off his engagement to a woman named Linda Woodrow uh, two weeks before their wedding. In 1970, John had his first relationship with a man, and that man would later become his manager. And they broke up after five years, but their professional relationship carried on for another like 20. In a 1976 interview in Rolling Stone, John came out as bisexual, saying that he was, quote, quite comfortable about being gay. So here's the thing. It would take me forever to walk you through Elton John's music career. Like an album at a time, that would be ridiculous. It's just too much. So I'm going to rattle off some songs in case you're not familiar, and then we're going to move on from there. Tiny Dancer, Crocodile Rock, Daniel, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, The Bitch is Back, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, Sad Songs Say So Much, there's uh, there's a lot of Elton John songs. I could keep going. The two of them, Elton, Bernie, they made a lot of hit songs over their career. Uh, Elton, when he played, became famous for his over-the-top fashion sense. He would always, in his in spectacle, he would have these big kind of crazy jackets and stuff and, 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 and wacky hats and the glasses. Always the big, uh, you know, I think he owns thousands of pairs of glasses. <laughs> and they were always these big, loud, ostentatious ostentatious is a very good word for it. Yeah. But that's kind of the Elton John style. And we're going to see that in, the, in this episode that it's apparently contagious. In 1975, Elton overdosed on cocaine uh, and also had developed bulimia. And according to him, he has now been sober for over 30 years. In 1984, he married German recording engineer Renate Bluel, but they were divorced quickly thereafter. Uh, Elton said she was a good person, but he was living a lie. Uh, in 93, he began dating filmmaker David Furnish. And on December 21st, 2005, they were amongst the first couples to enter into a same-sex civil partnership in the United Kingdom. And then they would marry in 2014 after the UK went all the way and legalized same-sex marriage.
Elton and uh, composer Tim Rice wrote songs for the 1994 Disney film The Lion King and won an Oscar for it for uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? They also wrote Hakuna Matata and all that stuff. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994 by Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses, with whom he had performed at the uh, Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert in 1992. And man, do I remember that show. That was a big deal. That was a pay-per-view event after Freddie Mercury died. It was a huge, I think it was at uh, Wembley in uh, in London, huge deal. And uh, a lot of American bands, a lot of big bands, the remaining members of Queen. And uh, he performed Bohemian Rhapsody with uh, Axl and uh, the remaining members of Queen. Just kill a man Put a gun against his head Pull my trigger now is dead he would also compose the music for the 2003 stage musical Billy Elliot. In 1997, Elton lost two close friends. Italian fashion designer Gianni Versace was murdered by the spree killer uh, Andrew Cunanan and Diana, the Princess of Wales, who uh, died in that famous and tragic Paris car crash. He and Toppin reworked the lyrics of their 1973 song Candle in the Wind to honor the departed princess. You lived your life like a candle in the wind Fading with the sunset when the rain set in, and your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills. The only time he played the song like live was at Diana's funeral, but the song became the fastest and biggest selling single of all time selling over 33 million copies worldwide. The 2009 Guinness Book of World Records says that the song is the biggest selling single since UK and US single charts began in the 1950s. At the 2001 Grammy Awards, Elton duetted with Marshall Mathers, aka Slim Shady, aka Eminem, on Mathers' hit song Stan. There was a lot of... uh, criticism early on of Eminem and his use of a particular F word. And I don't mean fuck. I remember it feeling like a little bit of a PR stunt for him to perform with Elton John, who was obviously a very out and famous gay performer is almost like, ah, he's cool with me, even though you use uh, a a gay slur on your songs a lot. Um, But I remember I remember that happening. In 2003, he signed a deal to do 75 shows over three years at Caesars Palace in Vegas. uh, And he kind of alternated nights with Celine Dion. They both had a deal there. They just kind of went back and forth. I could go on forever about this stuff, but uh, we have to talk about the Muppets eventually. So um, John and Furnish have two sons, both born to the same surrogate mother. And he has 10 godchildren, including Sean Lennon, David and Victoria Beckham's son, Brooklyn and Romeo and Elizabeth Berkeley's son Damien is a gay man and because of his friendships with AIDS victims like Freddie Mercury and Ryan White John has been highly active in the HIV AIDS causes pretty much since the mid 80s in 1986 he sang on the single that's what friends are for with Diane Warwick Gladys Knight and Stevie Wonder with all profits going to the American Foundation for AIDS research and he founded the Elton John AIDS Foundation in 1992 Elton has five Grammys, two Academy Awards, and a Tony, leaving him just an Emmy away from an EGOT. Sir Elton was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 1998. And then back in 1975, he became the 1,662nd person to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Always outspoken, sometimes to a fault, Elton is currently 74 years old. Fun fact, and this one's kind of personal to me. In 2009, Alice in Chains guitarist and co-founder Jerry Cantrell asked John to collaborate on a song on their first album that they were making after the death of their original frontman, Lane Staley. Because the first concert Lane Staley had ever attended as a child was Elton John, and his mother said it really entranced him and was one of the things that generated his interest in making music. Elton played piano on the album's title track, Black Gives Way to Blue, which is a tribute to their former frontman, 
who had finally lost his battle with addiction. So I didn't hit everything. Again, he's Elton John, but the TLDR is this. Elton John is one of the biggest rock stars in the history of rock stars. And this episode is all about Elton John being a rock star, even the laugh track. Did you notice, notice what they did with the laugh track? They, they sweetened it. There's cheers in there. There's like women screaming. Um, There's a lot more applause. They like give him like a rock star laugh track. I didn't actually catch that, but now that you mention it. Elton John, uh, Elton John, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. John. It's great to be here. Even my lunch likes me. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Elton John. So in our cold open, uh, Scooter just comes in and tells you know, Elton, it's time for the show. And Elton claims that he's having fun and that even his lunch likes him. And then we pull out and he's got a bunch of, uh, you know, talking food that he's trying to put salt on. Just a little side gag. Opening credits. Gonzo's trumpet unleashes a spray of water. Same thing that happened in episode two of three, actually. And yeah. And if you listen in this moment at right after you can hear after Kermit's opening, you can hear a louder cheers. Kermit comes out and it's very brief. He just comes out and says, hey, our guest is Elton John. And here's Elton John. <laughs> He's very, he's very uh, direct about it. So this costume, I think I saw for the first time on CeeLo Green or something similar to it. CeeLo is, uh, has definitely worn some Elton John-ish costumes in his day. So we come out and I'm going to let you in on a secret. Every song on this episode, except for one is it written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. This is very much like when we get to Paul Simon down the road. You've got one of the biggest recording artists in the world. You don't bring him on there to sing other people's songs. You bring him on there to play the hits. So in our first number, we have Elton singing Crocodile Rock. I remember when Rock was young Me and Susie had so much fun Holding hands and skimming stones Had an old Chevy the Mayhem also get quite a workout in this episode. They're in like every number. Said Crocodile Rock is one of his uh, hit songs, uh, from especially from his early days. But but this has a little added thing where there's actually crocodiles running around. One of my, uh, I was watching the episode with my roommate, and he brought up the fact that a lot of, especially in this episode, a lot of the songs that we, we see from Elton sort of have this pre-built-in nostalgia. Yeah. There's always that sort of retrospective... I mean, you can definitely see it with Crocodile Rock. With Benny and the Jets. Looking back to Good Times with Susie and... Yeah. Yeah. His songs, I would say they're very evocative of a time. Mm -hmm. But in this, he has the um, three crocodiles are singing... I don't, it's not the chorus, really, right? They're singing... I guess you would call that the chorus. He is wearing probably his most outlandish outfit of the whole episode, I'd say. I think he starts off at the at his uh, craziest. Yeah. With this big, like, feather suit and his glasses. Like sort of a carnival, sort of. It's pretty insane. 
Um, it's great. It's very. It's also very Elton John. Um, it really is. So it's it's. He's not straying too far. He's not. He's not trying to change his image with this episode. Let's just put it that way. And of course, at the end of the song, the uh, the uh, crocodiles actually manage to grab Elton and pull him down and take him out, which leads to a very funny joke. I think when they're coming off stage after that, and Kermit yells at the crocodiles, he's like, "Okay, hey, listen, guys, how many times have I told you never eat the guest star at the beginning of the show?" Meaning. It's okay to eat them at the end. It's happened before. <laughs> and that it's okay to eat them later. We got a show to get to. If you got to eat them at the end, you know, we're the Muppets. We eat stuff. Out of so they come back and uh, um, Piggy is totally into Elton. Um, don't tell her that he's probably not into her. And Scooter's bringing in a piano. Now Scooter is wearing like a rock star jacket. He's wearing like a, an Elton John jacket. Scooter, Scooter is way into Elton John, by the way. Way in. Also, I think, is this the first time that Scooter's mentioned his uncle owning the theater to get something to go his way this season? This season, I believe so, yeah. Like, it's definitely not the first for the show, but I, I feel like I haven't heard it as much. Uh, he did have the moment where he got money for the payroll, but that was actually doing something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, so Scooter comes in with a piano and Kermit's like, what the hell are you doing? Oh, I found this song for Elton John. He's just got to hear it. He don't got to hear it. Gee, my uncle who owns this theater wanted him to hear it. Uh, where do you want the piano? Kermit's like, let me help you push. There's no way in hell Kermit gets a piano up there. We've seen what those little arms do. Those little rubber bands he calls arms. To be fair, Kermit did throw down with Debo Rat for a minute. Oh, home. Yeah, but then remember him trying to get the cage open in the in the frog prince? That's true. Yeah, he's got a very particular set of skills. And notice they don't show him going up the stairs. They like just go off camera. So they're going to move that into the thing. Then we cut to one of the funnier Swedish chef bits that we've had so far. And it's the gift that keeps giving. It is. It is. Uh, this is this is uh, this is a real good running gag. So we come in and the chef is going to make egg du chef. He, he's basically like making like a. I kept thinking he was like basically saying like farm to table or something, you know, like the, the initial setup is the same as it was two episodes ago. Yes. With- Where he's trying to make a chicken lay an egg. But this one only lays ping pong balls. <laughs> But the chef is pretty good at adapting uh, up to a point. So if he can't get eggs, the chef. <laughs> then he wants to make cheeky do chef. And so he decides to, fine. He's like, fine, you're not going to give me eggs. Or you're going to give me ping pong balls. Great. I'm going to eat you. And so he starts salting the bird. He gets out his frying pan. And then it becomes a chase sequence around the around the table while he's chasing the chicken. Big hit in my house, by the way, this sequence. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. running around. And then at one point, the chicken looks back at him and he stops and he pretends like it's like a banjo for a second. He holds it and strums it and sings a little bit like he's playing a banjo, like he's trying to be nonchalant. Then he runs after the chicken again. The chef is chasing a chicken. Hold that thought. Just remember that. It doesn't really resolve, yeah. No, but it comes back. We come into uh, uh, Elton's dressing room and him and Kermit are having a little talk and Elton's like, you know, I really, you know, I really appreciate how much you're making me feel welcome, but we didn't need to put a piano in my dressing room. Oh, well, you see, I've been meaning to talk to you about this piano. Uh, You see, we've got a gopher around here and uh, we've had frogs. Chickens? No, a gopher. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you see, that's an old theatrical term. A gopher is somebody you have around to gopher coffee. Uh, isn't that interesting? No. Nope. Uh, you see, this gopher of ours, uh, well, he, he's found a song he wants you to do on the show. Mm. Oh, Kermit. I thought you were more professional than that. Bitch, I'm Elton John. What do you mean you're going to have me play a song? Well, I, I'm sorry, Elton, but uh, the kid has taste, he's got talent, and he's got an uncle who owns the theater. Please, oh, please. Okay, okay, let's hear it. Please. 
Kermit gets real grovelly real fast. You know Kermit doesn't want to ask him for that. And so Scooter comes in with a handful of other Muppets and he's still in his gear and he says, okay, I'll play this song for you. And he plays something that is completely unrecognizable. It's worse than Fugue for Frog, I would say. But I'm a fan of Fugue for Frog. So, uh, but he, what he's really playing is a very bad version of Benny and the Jets. And we have a classic comedy situation where Kermit, after it's over, wouldn't like that song that song is a tasteless it's a that song has no melody that isn't isn't that the worst song you've ever heard elton well i didn't think so when i wrote it did you get the idea that scooter knew this was an elton john song i didn't i i think it could have easily been just him being a big fan of elton and then trying to do his own thing and coming up with elton's like second draft or something or just not knowing that it was his song so then uh, in order to convince kermit that it's actually a good song elton plays Benny and the Jets with everybody. And it's, again, one of his big, one of his big classic songs. There's not a whole lot to say about the the musical numbers in this just because it's just like it's Elton John playing, you know, <laughs> Benny and the Jets. Like, I don't know what else you want from me. You know, like it's it's a it's a rock star playing his rock songs. And I mean, they're well played and the scene is well set. Oh, no, of course. Yeah. All those things. It's just like there's not a whole lot because there's not there's no sketches or anything. It's hard to kind of really comment on them. If you like Elton John music, you'll like the number. If you don't like Elton John music, you'll probably be a little less, you know, a little colder on it. Once again for Veterinarian's Hospital, the continuing story of a quack who has gone to the dog. We find that the patient this week is Baskerville the Hound, and we just get a whole lot of dog jokes. I hope he doesn't have fleas. Why not? I hate to start from scratch. (laughs) What kind of dog is he, Dr. Bob? Ask him what time it is. Why? He might be a watchdog. (laughs) A very large number of dog jokes. You know, I know a woman who was once attacked by her own guard dog. Doberman Pinscher? No, Doberman Bitter. (laughs) Hey, where did you find him? At the Lost and Hound Department. (laughs) I wish he was a dachshund. Why? I'd like to get a long little doggy. No! Uh, poor Baskerville. He's just an extra now. You know, I don't even think he talks in this, does he? I think he has like one or two lines, but not very many. Now, here's a little weird thing. When this episode aired originally, it went from Veterinarian's Hospital to the UK spot with Kermit and Fozzie. The Disney Plus version does the same thing. That is the official like cut of the episode. However, when the season two DVDs came out, like the ones that we have, there was actually another musical number that they added just for the DVD that was like a deleted scene or something that they shoved in between these two sketches. It's a shame because it's real funny. It's real funny. Hey, 
I didn't know you could play the piano. I didn't know it either. It's Rolf and Fozzie at the piano, and they're playing a, an old traditional song called English Country Garden. Basically, like, Fozzie discovering that he knows how to play piano. <laughs> it seemed like a chopstick setup, sort of. It's just Fozzie and Rolf, you know, Jim and Frank, wailing on the piano together, doing some great jokes. The best joke being when Fozzie's, like, wailing, he loses his hat. Oh, my hat! Good stuff. Even Muppet Wiki doesn't really have it listed as a sketch in the episode. It has it as like an addendum for the DVD only. It's really funny. Oh, that's how it works, huh? Let's play. Yes, sir. Big finish. Watch out. So then we get the actual UK spot. You know, we're not going to see Burlington Birdie anymore, but we're going to keep going, apparently, with these music hall numbers. And so we get another music hall song from 1911 called Any Old Iron. But this one is a duet with Kermit and Fozzie. Just a week or two ago, my poor old Uncle Bill went and kicked the bucket and he left me in his will. The other day I popped around to see poor Annie Jane. She said your Uncle Bill has left to you a watch and chain. Or dressed kind of snazzy. I don't know, man. It's it's hard. Right? Like these English, we've talked about this, these musical songs that are kind of hard to judge. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's a fine performance. It's just, yeah. Yes, the performance is why you watch this, right? I mean, again, though, it's the UK spot. Like, again, taking UK spot very literally, because I, I have a feeling if you're British, you're more likely to know this song. But it's a fun number. You're right. The performances are really good. And that's what makes it whether whatever your opinion of the song is. So then Scooter comes out to introduce Elton John, but uh, before he does, he gets interrupted by... Swedish Chef, still trying to resolve that last sketch. Still chasing the chicken, now he's got a cleaver, though. Well, he had to upgrade. You have to imagine, if he's carrying around, like, a full-on skillet chasing someone, that's going to be hell on his wrist. Yeah, no, he's he's upgraded to a cleaver, and he's still chasing that chicken. So after that, they clear the frame. Uh, Scooter says that uh, he was told not to overdo Elton's introduction, so he says, uh, Here he is, the greatest talent in the history of the universe, Elton John! Smooth scooter. Elton and the Electric Mayhem perform Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, another one of Elton's huge songs. Uh, it's a title track from an album, obviously the same name. When I gonna come down? When I going to land? I should have stayed on the phone. I should have listened to my man. It's interesting because Elton's always playing piano. That's his primary instrument, maybe his only instrument. But because he's always playing piano, I'm always like, what's Dr. Teeth doing? And at first in this sketch, I thought he was scratching records. Like there was a moment where I looked at him and it looked like he was almost like I was like, well, what's he doing? I thought he was DJing. He's it's really just in front of a keyboard. But for a moment there, I was like, is he is he the DJ? He wasn't playing an organ. It was like uh, it was just like a keyboard. I hmm. think I think he's just playing like an electric keyboard, which is normally what he plays. He doesn't really play piano, right? Bye, And they play uh, a very straightforward performance of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And again, the, the Mayhem. Mayhem are ha- the Mayhem are having a good week uh, with this episode. They're just, they're on screen a lot because they're basically Elton's backing band for the whole episode. Mm-hmm. Right. 
After that, we get a very good pigs in space. A very funny pigs in space. So I I don't I'm sure I saw it as a small child, but I don't really remember watching Flash Gordon. <laughs> right. But having heard Flash so many times, Cletus, I'm bored was the first thing that came to my mind when the sketch started. Cletus, I'm bored. The narrator tells us that the pigs have run into a severe case of boredom. Now we find out they only they only took off 20 minutes ago when they're already bored. But they keep they do this uh, synchronized sigh a couple of times. <laughs> That's really funny. They're just bored. Link keeps lamenting the uh, what is it? The oh, the endless sameness of eternal space. A pig could go mad. Very poetically. And, uh, but then there's some excitement because an alarm goes off and their alarm's telling them there's an alien in the ship. Wait, wait, before we get to the fact that the alarm tells them that the alien is on the ship. Sure. Can we talk about the fact that the red light bulb that is clearly an alarm light bulb goes off? Yes. And people are looking around like, what light bulb? I don't understand. (laughs) What are you referring to? Well, you know. Where did you learn your trade? (laughs) Uh, well, you know, it was a bad year at the Academy, apparently. <laughs> maybe they're like the first graduates of Starfleet. So like they still haven't figured everything out yet. Or maybe they're maybe they're still in a simulator and we just don't know it. <laughs> That's why they saw Gonzo on the motorcycle in yeah. that first one. Yeah. So they get freaked out that there's aliens coming in. and But they're also getting excited because they're not bored anymore. And then Strange Pork is like, oh, no, it's actually two aliens. And they're like, oh, my God. And they're like, one, one was- is very frightened and has feathers. The other speaks some sort of strange Scandinavian tongue. And in come the Swedish chef and the chicken. <laughs> left to right, screen left to right, chases the chicken, cross the bridge of the swine trek with his cleaver and out the other side. Then there's a, a pause. <laughs> And then they reflect on the fact that they kind of miss them. <laughs> well, they're gone. Somehow, I miss them. Oh, the endless sameness of eternal space. And they end the sketch with another synchronized <sighs> sigh of boredom. Jim was usually playing the Swedish chef at this point in time, wasn't he? Yeah, he's the chef. Yeah, they would have had somebody else doing it for this. Yeah, we got... Jerry, Frank, and Jim up front there. Could be Richard. And then the chase continues backstage. <laughs> but we're with Kermit. And then the chef comes running. And then the chicken comes after him because the chicken's got the cleaver now. Which, you know, tracks. The Swedish chef is more of a blunderbuss man than a, a cleaver man. He is. Apparently his melee skills are a little lacking. Sam comes across as very unwoke in this episode. Now. <laughs> you don't say. Fair. Here's the thing. I know that Elton John is gay. Most people know that Elton John is gay. Sam is talking about how he's like the weirdest guest they've ever had and how he dresses and all this stuff. And listen, that's not what they're saying, but I felt a little weird about it. He's not the first gay guy. Hell, he's the second gay guest we've had in this episode. Just the fact that Sam's like, I don't like this guy. He's weird. He dresses funny. Like it felt a, I was a little like oh, it doesn't play as well. I think Sam hasn't made it far enough to be that kind of bigot. <laughs> okay. Like he's... That is a grander scale of bigotry, but I think with Sam, it's not, it's more, it plays more on a lack of self-awareness than it does on any sort of inherent bigotry. My cousin has a roommate, a female roommate, Uh who she has been living with for like many years, and yet they can never bring themselves to say the word. She's just her roommate. Oh, they've got to step their game up. Three Christmases ago, my dad's mom asked me if I was gay, and I just had to inform her that I was really socially inept and bad at talking to women. 
She's like, you know, it's okay, right? I'm like, I appreciate that, Grandy, but... I'm just an ineffectual heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, I'm just bad at this. It's okay. And so Sam is very, like, he's very upset. Like, again, he says, I've seen some weird crap on here, but this is the weirdest. And to be fair, Elton John does dress crazy weird. And he mentions that he dresses like a stolen car. What does that mean? Is that like a graffiti thing? Is that what they're talking about? I, I mean, I imagine some people might go so far after stealing a car as to change the paint job. I didn't quite get the joke. I didn't either. Because they make it twice. And Kermit's like, but dude, Mozart wore, you know, heels and a wig in silk stockings. He's like, that's not true. I don't even know if he knows who Mozart is, by the way, Sam. Um, but they make a bet. Very odd of Sam, though. He makes a wager. I feel like Sam has heard Mozart's name in the same way that he heard Rudolph's name. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. it just came from whatever yeah. Sam's version of Fox News was. And he's just like, oh, respectable. This is on my list right. of people that we would never get on that weirdo show. I mean, he's been dead for a couple hundred years, but still. Kermit's like, that isn't true. And he says he'll eat his hat if that's true. And Kermit's like, well, will you also go introduce Elton John if it's true? And he's like, fine, taking the bet. And then, of course, Scooter comes and is like, hey, guys. Look at this great picture of Mozart, Elton John, Well, those high heels and silk stockings. What? Hey, Sam, you know, you'd look great in a powdered wig. Does Elton John just go around with pictures of Mozart? Yeah, yeah it's it, it almost seems like it was set up like Scooter was just paid a little bit extra to come in with Mozart at that point. Because Kermit was just anticipating that Sam was going to be a dick. Just like, let's see where Sam takes this. What is he going to have to say about Elton John? Let's see how he insults my guest. So then, because he's lost the bet... Sam's got to go introduce Elton John, but before they have to get him ready. <laughs> and so a couple of whatnots come in with a changing screen and they drag Sam behind the changing screen. Now, we don't see what they change him into, what wardrobe they change him into, because that would kill the reveal. How would we describe Sam's outfit? OK, so I know mm -hmm. that there's a setup here for how I should describe it. But honestly, looking at the top hat pulled down over that very prominent eagle brow, he looks like a YouTube conspiracy theory like Avatar. <laughs> so Sam comes out. He's wearing an Elton Johnish outfit. He's also red, white, and blue. At least they humored him and kept him in his preferred color scheme. I feel like this is the outfit that he would introduce George Clinton in. Listen, the line between a George Clinton outfit and an Elton John outfit is very thin. <laughs> it's true. I have never made that comparison, but it's true. Um, let's see. I am proud to introduce one of the great names in popular music, one of my all-time favorites, Elton John. Come out and Electric A Mayhem is again on stage, and Elton is going to sing his hit song, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, great song, with Miss Piggy. Now, I'd first to point out, I'd like to point out he is wearing the Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> he is. That's important because Piggy respects boundaries. No, and I does. have to and I have to apologize. I in an earlier episode made a crack that it seemed to live every black guy in the 70s had to do this. But obviously Elton John had to as well. So I apologize for my uh, prejudice. This is definitely the fall. I mean, it's almost down to his navel. Oh, yeah. It's a very low V. <laughs> um. So will you please give a great reception to the fantastic Miss Piggy. <laughs> It seems like an eternity. Of course it does. Ready? Don't go breaking my heart. I couldn't if I tried. A heart if I get restless. Baby, you're not that kind. 
it's funny. It is a more subdued outfit compared to his others, mm-hmm. despite the, except for the, the, the chest hair going all the way down to his navel. And him and Piggy sing a, just a really good, solid duet of Don't Go Breaking My Heart. She does get a snap full of chest hair at some point. Yes. And actually, when Elton John first released this song, it was a duet with a woman named Kiki D. And actually, you, you hear in this rendition, Piggy even says, Eat your heart out, Kiki! I'm not going to say I'm the world's biggest Elton John fan. Like, I don't I, I like Elton John's songs, but I'm not a I wouldn't consider myself a fan. Like uh, when you go to like uh, Apple Music, you have like there's an essentials list and there's like a deep cuts list for different artists. Right. Like I know most of the songs in the essentials list, but I don't know anything on the deep cuts list. So the thing that's interesting about Elton John is I, I've been aware of him for most of my life. He is one of our guests that I would have known just at the drop of a hat. But in more recent years, he's been doing a lot of collaborations with artists that I I do follow more closely. Like, he co-wrote one of the better songs on a really good album from Queens in the Stone Age. And then he was also featured on the most recent Gorillaz album. So he's still very active and very involved with the younger generation of artists. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I heard that he was Eminem's AA sponsor. Like I said, I mean, they, they did have a little bit of a relationship there. That would make sense. Um, is that he has been a very, I'd say, outspoken proponent of his sobriety. You know, cocaine almost killed him. And he responded to it by getting sober. And he's been sober for 30 years. I admire because he's got this sort of, or at least the persona that I I understand of the current Elton John is a sort of mentor to younger performers. And there is that aspect to him. There's also the aspect of him that he has kind of also been turned. He is also, you know, I mean, he's in his 70s, right? So he's also kind of turned into a slightly unpolitically correct. He's kind of seen publicly as kind of a grumpy guy these days. I'm not going to call him a problematic character. I don't think he is. He's just a, you know, he's a very opinionated man who has never in his life been afraid to express his opinions. Unfortunately, as you get older, that be actually becomes more of a detriment because your opinions as you get older tend to not line up with the public opinion as well. And so, but if you're still someone who always speaks their mind, there comes a point where maybe you should stop speaking your mind. <laughs> um, so he, he has said some things over the years that have been controversial or insulting or whatever. There's no doubting him as a talent and as a star and his like little performance moments in this where it's like acting, they're not very impressive. But just when he's singing, like there's no doubt that this man's a star, right? Oh, yeah. He's he's amazing. I enjoy Elton John. I'm probably going to put on that Elton John Essentials list when we get done here. And, you know, don't go breaking my heart. It's a really good pop song. Yeah. What the hell are Statler and Waldorf wearing? I think Waldorf is wearing a turban. Waldorf looks like he's in like a full like like he's ready to sing Pafalafaga. Like it's like a whole like. Uh someone's gonna kick me for not remembering this there's a famous piece of americana that features a woman dressing up in a curtain like a green curtain because she couldn't find a dress what was it gone with the wind that was probably was that it gone with the wind has the famous moment where scar scarlet o'hara tears down the drapes and yeah i've i've never seen her at that but I, you don't need that to tracks. you don't need to but yeah <laughs> If you want to see how cool it was to be in the Antebellum South. Oh, that's a rabbit hole. Waldorf looks like he's dressed up as a Sheik of Araby. Mm-hmm. Statler's kind of like Dracula? Or so Liberace? Is, Statler's arms seem like they're crossed. So it made me think of that Queen album cover. 
but he's also got like the he's he's also, he's also got his collar popped. Mm-hmm. I mean, a very large collar, but like kind of popped out, so it's a little Dracula like. They have changed their clothes to try to match, but they they even say that. Hey, hey, we look like members of the Rock Age. Uh, we look more like members of the Stone Age. <laughs> we come to say goodnight, and the Muppets come onto the stage, and they are all dressed like Elton John, <laughs> and it's wonderful. So much fun. They are all wearing the crazy sunglasses and Kermit's lamenting about what the wardrobe budget for the week is going to be. Um, <laughs> but Kermit Scooter says they're going to save money on the lights because their outfits are all so bright. And they're all wearing crazy sunglasses and they're all wearing crazy hats. And then Elton comes out wearing what? Very normal sort of like, a, I guess, a pageway outfit. Yeah, just a, just, a, nah, just a nice suit. Just a nice British suit. Then he comments that they're all dressed like stolen cars, which is a reference to a joke that we just talked about not quite getting. <laughs> This is another episode where Louise Gold uh, was in it. She she played one of the background singers, but again, wasn't credited uh, as well. Just to, to make sure it's clear, she is she is now officially a member of the cast. I don't know why her name's not in it. I guess, like I said, I think it's maybe union stuff, production stuff. I don't know what it is. Maybe she's still considered a temp until next year where they bring her on full time. These are two very different episodes. Like they were both, they were both based around the guests very prominently. Almost feels silly to like go like, yeah, that Elton John, he's pretty good at what he does. Like, yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> you know. Next time, all hogs on deck. On the next episode of A Feat of Lunatic Daring, we're going to be covering episodes 215 and 216. I still can't believe we're this late into the season. With musicians Lou Rawls and Cleo Lane. I know who Lou Rawls is. I don't have an inkling as to who Cleo Lane is. Um, and then we will keep on trucking towards the end of the season. Until then, uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, thank you for listening. Good night. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, what'd you think? There's four, 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 there's four,